Hi everyone, and welcome to Himal Interviews. I'm Raisa Vikramatunga, Acting Editor of Himal South Asian, and I'm joined by Public Policy Analyst Tawar Bhatt, who is also the co-founder and organizer for Climate Action Pakistan, which is a collective of major climate and environment advocacy groups from Pakistan. For the past few weeks, there have been deeply worrying images and video coming out of Pakistan, which has been experiencing heavy flooding, described as the worst in the country's history. And we're going to be talking about what the situation is on the ground, as well as examining some of the root causes for the exacerbation of flooding in the country in recent years. Thanks, Tavar, for joining us today. Thank you, Rasa. So um, just to start off on, um, I think it was around the 25th of August, uh, Pakistan, I believe, declared a state of emergency due to flooding. And um, firstly, I just wanted to ask, you know, what is the current situation right now? Like now that it's been a few, um, really almost a month um, since, you know, flooding really um, has been, you know, going on. How many people have been affected? How many, you know, displaced? And what's the situation right now? So uh, actually, it's been more than two months now, and uh, the, this is one of the stark realities that no one really thought it would get, get so bad. And uh, by the time the government declared emergency, a lot of the areas were already submerged. So uh, we have about uh, 33, 35 million people who live in these uh, regions that have been affected. And uh, we have uh, up to 10 million people who have been uh, displaced at some point. For example, in the northern parts of the country, they were temporarily displaced and they've begun uh, returning to homes. But in Sindh and Balochistan, for example, areas are still underwater. And uh, in certain parts, they're still under 12 feet of water. So those cities, people will take time to return to those cities. And uh, uh, the government records uh, say that uh, you have nearly uh, 1,500 people who've lost their lives. But uh, this is such a tra uh, tragedy that you cannot really uh, give a sure short number at this point. And uh, we hear uh, various reports of how the, a new body surfaces in another part of the town, another city every day so the death toll is going to increase as well then you have the agriculture and livestock losses because these are primarily rural regions who depend on the economy is primarily rural and, and livestock related so uh, in terms of livestock losses you have one million livestock lost as well uh, people's livelihoods uh, were associated with it so recovery for them is also going to be a very very tough process and then, of course, you have uh, infrastructure losses. Uh, the government has been unable to reach certain parts even right now because roads uh, do not exist anymore. Bridges have been uh, washed away and uh, electricity cannot be provided because grid stations themselves are underwater. So this is the situation right now. And over the past week, uh, there has been a reduction in flood waters in certain parts, especially the uh, freshwater lake called Manchur, which is uh, one of the biggest in Asia. So uh, the water started receding in this part of the region because uh, they uh, artificially created certain outlets for the water to exit. But those outlets actually had to go over land, which means that anything uh, between the Indus River and the Manchur Lake was also flooded. 
just to release the waters from the lake. So this is where we stand right now. And uh, the, I think the coming period will be just as difficult because you have reports of massive disease outbreaks. You have uh, reports of mosquito infestations. Uh, you have reports of uh, snakes coming out of the marshes, uh, un uh, unavailability of uh, anti-venom. So this is where we are right now. Thanks, Tavar. And, um, you know, you kind of touched on this when you were answering the first question, but um, what would you say are some of the differences that you've seen in terms of impact um, outside, you know, the cities like Islamabad? Um, what are like some of the differences that you're seeing? Compared to previous disasters, I don't think we've uh, seen this before. And uh, I say this because a lot of the flooding, even the big floods and uh, different sorts of events that have happened during the monsoon season in the past uh, were related to the river uh, basically flooding the regions around it. In this case, what we've seen is that uh, cities are, of course, big cities are situated nearby rivers. But for example, in the 2010 floods, you have the big city of Multan that was very, very close to getting flooded. The, the waters had touched the airport of the city. Uh, this time around, these the eastern branches of the Indus uh, did not flood because uh, they, it wasn't a riverine flood. Uh, what we see was immense amounts of rainfall. And uh, because the region of Sindh is very, very flat in a way, and uh, just because of the riverine floods of the past, a lot of the regions had created these artificial embankments. So because rain came from up top, now they assumed that the flood water from the river might come at one point and flood the inland areas. But what has happened is that rainwater came and it didn't have any point to exit into the river because embankments were lined along the river for miles and miles. So that's uh, that's what we have, people were unprepared for. And uh, big cities, of course, we had episodes of urban flooding in all big cities of Pakistan. Uh, cities like Karachi regularly have uh, faced these episodes and uh, it drastically affects infrastructure over here as well. Uh, you have still have a, a lot of damaged roads. You still have uh, water pipelines that have been damaged and dirty water gets mixed into it. And uh, in cities like Islamabad, of course, those are like linked to the plains and hilly areas. So the water has points of exit, but uh, these uh, rural areas of Sindh, especially, these are like bowl-shaped flatlands. So it's just very, very difficult to assess how long it will take. And uh, cities, in a sense, big cities, people living there are safe. Uh, they have the privilege to be walking around, going around. Uh, the situation isn't the same in the parts of uh, Upper Sindh and Balochistan. And, you know, um, you, you touched on this in the beginning and there's been uh, footage as well of, uh, you know, mass displacement. Um, so what are the kind of immediate needs of all the people who have been displaced right now? And are those being adequately addressed? So the immediate needs in uh, terms, in, especially I think this is common to other disasters as well, that clean water, food and uh, availability of health services is uh, crucial at this point. Uh, we have uh, areas where uh, people are still without uh, temporary shelter, they don't have tents, but there's also the issue that 
just after monsoon, the heat usually returns and it has returned. So uh, the weather is started touching 40 degrees in areas. People within those tents find it very, very difficult to breathe and stay there for the entire day. So a lot of them actually have preferred to build temporary shelters nearby their own cities on highways. So this is a this is what we've seen that uh, they are reluctant to stay in relief camps, especially if there is no regular maintenance from the government. They prefer to go to the roads and highways nearby their villages or cities and put up temporary shelters there. And uh, at the same time, some have sought refuge under uh, large uh, shady areas. You have uh, certain parts have those sort of vegetation. Uh, the eastern percent parts do not have that sort of vegetation either. So uh, those are the immediate needs that clean water and some sort of form of cooling. That means that uh, government might actually have to supply large ice blocks because that is a way people in, in these cities already uh, avoided heat. Cities like Jekabad, Kambar, Larkana, uh, in extreme hot months, they used uh, these uh, huge ice blocks to keep themselves cool for water, for drinking, for bathing. So. This is the sort of thing that we have to assess that uh, this month, uh, the chances of heat staying are still a lot. Uh, it will recede by mid-October, end-October. But uh, in the meantime, because of heat and humidity, you also have diseases coming up. So those are the needs that clean water, ice, perhaps, and then, of course, shelter that is suitable for these climates and uh, health services. Thanks, Davaria. And to the point that you were making about um, the spread of disease, I believe the Director General um, of the WHO just recently said that this is going to be the second crisis uh, that uh, is going to be experienced in terms of the spread of disease. Um, are we already seeing that happen? Uh, yes, yes we are. Uh, there, were, there are routine reports that uh, just yesterday government assessment was that one lakh people have been treated for various diseases in just one day. So uh, you can assume that uh, this will only increase. And uh, if you have a displaced population in Sindh is about three to five million. So people, uh, grown-ups, children, uh, women, old people, everyone has a different issue. And a lot of them, uh, in a sense, uh, already had different health issues. For example, you have kidney patients, they require dialysis, so you don't have that availability anymore. Uh, some people re require regular checkups. So that sort of treatment also has to happen, but there's a big, big burden for uh, especially vector-related diseases, which is uh, malaria and dengue. And then you also have uh, dirty water over there. So you have uh, people who have gastro, you have people who uh, chances of typhoid breaking out, so this is perhaps actually going to be a big, big crisis. Uh, and it started in certain areas. And uh, it also sort of is linked to where people are. So in various areas where people manage to shelter themselves, uh, they might be still safe. But people who have been displaced completely, they're very much at risk. And um, you were earlier speaking, uh, like if we go back and look at some of the root causes, uh, you mentioned that, you know, it wasn't so much a riverine flood, especially outside, but it was like heavier rainfall than expected. So why do you think, um, why would you say the impact has been more compared to, you know, previous years of flooding? 
I wouldn't say uh, in monetary terms, uh, what the estimate we have is similar to the 2010 floods, uh, but perhaps in the coming months, it might exceed it by a slight bit. Uh, the impact in this sense is bigger because the human impact is when we talk about number of people affected, that's very large. And uh, in uh, if you consider the start of the flooding period, which was sometime in July, till right now, now the floodwaters have receded. But if we uh, account for all the areas that were flooded, uh, you come to an estimate that one fifth or one fourth of the country at some point had floodwaters. So at, at even at this point, about one tenth of the country's landmass has floodwaters on it. So while we look at the riverine floods, it was uh, much lesser and it did not exceed one tenth at any point. And uh, because it was around the Indus River, so wherever the river was traveling with high floods, those regions were affected. Uh, right now, the primary issue is that water has nowhere to go. So the human impact, in a sense, in, in, in a uh, way of saying that over a time, it's also over a time period. It's not that water will come in, go away, and you can recover. So the longitudinal human impact is a lot more. And uh, similarly, you cannot assess the fact that what will happen in the coming months because there's no estimate when the rainwater will recede. So for the river, of course, there were certain calculations that these are the points, this is the flow of the water. But right now, there's in, in areas, there's no flow of water. Those areas will basically have to wait it out, which means either by evaporation or by soil absorption, that water will move and government will try to intervene by bringing in pumps, by bringing various uh, methods of to clear out the water. But uh, again, there's no uh, assessment of how long that will take. So rough estimate, six to eight months, there will be water in areas that are still standing there. Would you say that, um, you know, the impact of climate change has also kind of led to, you know, there being uh, more impact? Or is that something that's just kind of being perpetuated in, in the international media. To uh, sort of give you a summary of what we've experienced in the past six months. Uh, so Pakistan was having a dry spell since uh, late 2020. And uh, early reports from 2020 winter onwards, the Met Department had consistently been uh, notifying that there's a drought going on in Pakistan. This was repeated in 2021 as well. And then ICIMOD uh, did the assessment of the Karakoram and Himalaya region and noted that uh, snowfall had also decreased. Now, that uh, when this year started, uh, the river flows were uh, minimal. And uh, by late uh, May, that's when the river actually started to have some water in it. And uh, that was mostly because there was not enough snowfall for the river to have early season flows. The flows that we had were from glaciers and they did not come about till we had like very, very long heat wave. So this heat wave was earlier noted that it was made more likely because of climate change. And uh, when compared to uh, century old records, uh, it was supposed to not be this extreme or be uh, recurring so frequently. And uh, over the past couple of, uh, I think, two, three years, it's noted that what we call the La Nina phenomena, it usually does not occur year after year. And 
what what's been constantly pointed out that this is the third year running for the lanina uh, it usually does not come uh, more than twice and more regularly it's just once a year and then you return to the uh, el nino phenomenon a lot this along with the heat wave and heat wave causing very very high sea surface temperatures encouraging moisture build up in the atmosphere then the three year recurring la nina pattern what we what we saw was that the monsoon pattern was altered so you had more moisture in the monsoon but also the monsoon did not follow its regular path uh, the monsoon touched the areas that were the most heavily impacted by the heat wave itself so upper sin parts of rajasthan southern punjab these saw 50 51 degree temperatures uh, the monsoon usually goes to upper punjab and also parts of uh, the khyber pakhtunkhwa province parts of kashmir as well uh it travels throughout india so what we saw was that it basically turned direction it was traveling over rajasthan and it came over the sind province and uh, parts of rajasthan and did not move any further and uh, because it was carrying a lot more moisture so the rainfall was also a lot more erratic and uh, unbelievably high so that's what we i have uh, the information right now says that a lot of these dependent on dependent on uh, effects caused by global warming heat high moisture content changing patterns of the monsoon the la nina i'm not sure if it's uh, related to how much of it caused by uh, climate change itself but i'm sure anything any assessments that come out i climate scientists have been working on it they're still uh, trying to assess why it's three year long phenomena this time but uh, these factors combined uh, cause the immense amount of rainfall and why do you think in terms of media coverage that initially there wasn't really a lot of coverage especially you know um when it started in like balochistan around about june so uh, parts of pakistan have very low media presence these areas have local media and people who routinely are active on social media so those are the sources of information that also initially we had uh pakistan's mainstream media especially ones that people in urban areas or your policy makers or your uh, people associated with the in general connected with the world outside as well they don't generally watch uh, your smaller outlets uh your print media as well has uh, a reduced presence uh, largely because uh they depend on either freelancers or their own staff reporters which are situated in more populated areas in balochistan the rainfall was over this uh, mountain range called the suleman range so it's also a very uh, low densely populated area uh, you have a very few settlements there the problem is that when the water over there flows into populated areas so the koye sulaiman is a sharply rising elevated area right next to the plains of sin so any rainfall over there basically becomes a very very fast streams of water and those uh, came down on these regions so initially they uh, the speed of the water broke down protective embankments and then this kept on flowing into the lake and especially the yeah, western part of sin so that's what happened uh, you had people actually putting up tiktoks from villages because tiktoks popular in uh, all over the country as well so in general people who were active in the region they were putting up tiktoks you had those videos shared on whatsapp 
similarly, in the northern areas, you had the similar phenomena. The videos we saw of bridges getting destroyed, hotels being uh, basically uh, flooded, and then also being destroyed and uh, taken away by the river. Those videos were also shared by locals on ground, not by our mainstream media. So those are the, I think, uh, overall media presence is lacking. Mainstream media, even to an extent, most people do not know how to uh, really recover climate change in Pakistan or environmental issues in general. And also because the country itself has a economic crisis, there's also political turmoil, a lot of this becomes uh, a focus of mainstream media. They want to talk about currency depreciation. They want to talk about food prices. They uh, would show you a little bit of information that in these parts, this much rain was recorded. But what was happening, that was uh, not in their view. And, you know, uh, we've been talking about human impact and uh, in terms of uh, climate change as well. But... Um, would you say that it's fair that, uh, you know, the state capacity or rather the lack of state capacity in certain areas has also kind of exacerbated um, the impact of the flooding? That's very true. Pakistan's vulnerability is one of the reasons we are uh, very highly vulnerable is our lack of state capacity. Uh, there are parts of the country where the state is a minimum. You wouldn't have your disaster management authorities. You wouldn't have uh, your police services, uh, even health services. So that's very much true. And uh, parts of Balochistan, Sindh, parts of uh, the KB province, there are regions here where the state uh, virtually is non-existent. And uh, traditional authority, for example, traditional uh, local clan authorities, chiefs, etc., those are the ones uh, who get elected in these areas, and they also control the strings of various resources and uh, state authority. So this, in a sense, is also something that uh, has, has delayed response. Uh, the problem with this is that uh, this is bigger problem than climate change as well, because climate change just exposed these fault lines. It existed before. It has a, a sort of a governance culture that exists in these parts. It has not been efficient for a long time in terms of resource distribution, in terms of public service delivery, uh, climate change, and this flooding. Uh, this just exposes it more that there needs to be much more investment. There needs to be much more uh, participation by the government in these areas. And uh, to the very local level, the local units, which are the villages and town councils, that's where the government needs to come in and start providing basic services. and. At the same time, this will uh, this means that you you will have to develop your governance capacity by actually looking at the needs of the people. So uh, in many areas, even right now, the reason why government does not understand the needs of the people is because over the past many decades, it has not made an effort to really look into it. So they, that's where that has exacerbated our vulnerability in a sense. And what about in terms of infrastructure? I, I think I've seen some discussions about, you know, the construction of dams, for example, and, you know, the impacts that that kind of infrastructure um, can have. Um, do you think that uh, Pakistan has kind of invested in disaster preparedness and why or why not? So uh, the discussion we've had is that uh, dams would have mitigated or prevented the flooding. But uh, 
it would have been true if it was similar to 2010 floods when the Indus itself was in high flood. Uh, they would not, in this case, from the rain, they would not have really helped. Uh, there's also the, there's all has been a huge, uh, usually complex sort of debate between different federating units of the country that Sindh is a lower riparian part of the country. And by putting up large infrastructure up, up in the up north of the country and central parts, they've slowed down the water availability to the coastal regions or central parts of Sindh. Uh, and because before this flooding, we had a huge, uh, we had a very long heat wave and we had droughts over the past two years. This particular region, especially the coastal parts, which are uh, in this delta that is dependent on the flows of the river, has been uh, losing vegetation a lot, has lost a large part of its population because people have been migrating into big cities because there's lack of water, they cannot conduct agriculture, their uh, earnings from fisheries have gone down. So uh, that infrastructure debate also has to account for these things. Uh, in terms of infrastructure locally, which is your access roads and other things, uh, there, there has been an improvement over the past 15 years that your rural areas were becoming more and more connected. Uh, some of the highways have been refurbished. You had new highways built as well. Uh, but at the same time, uh, dams and what uh, what would have stopped is uh, going to be a much more complex uh, debate because people right now have different ideas and uh, a real a real assessment would answer that uh, what sort of if you're looking at the total impact of the floods what proportion was related to the river what proportion was related to the hill torrents what proportion was related to just the rain itself so that is what we need to sort of disaggregate and then see where investment needs to go. At the same time, Pakistan is already actually building two big dams uh, in the north of the country. So those projects are set to be inaugurated by 2028 or 2030. So you already have infrastructure coming in place over the river. And uh, it isn't like that the growth of uh, dam building is, has been stagnant in the country. You have multiple small dams that have come about in the smaller rivers, not not on the Indus. Uh, similarly, you would have development in Balochistan where many small dams were built after 2010 floods as well. Some of those have, have actually been damaged during these floods. So uh, the impact of that sort of mitigation strategy is really unsure at this point. I think that's a really salient point, Avar, because yeah, there does tend to be, even in media coverage, this kind of perception that's put forward that, you know, building infrastructure, building highways are going to solve these problems, but rather, you know, the focus should be on human needs and, um, of course, the root causes, what's actually uh, the most effective way to address these issues. Um, but, uh, you know, also moving on to, you know, response and relief as well. Um, you know, we've all been seeing on our Twitter uh, timelines, there's uh, so many kind of volunteer, voluntary efforts being shared for relief, which are often coming from, you know, nonprofits. Um, what do you think that denotes? And what would you say has been um, the government response? Has it been adequate to kind of address the needs of people? Uh, 
so pakistan has a, a long culture of non profits particularly charity organizations coming about in uh, disasters we have a huge huge uh, sort of fleet of ambulances that is run by private organizations part of it has uh, formed because of terrorism of over the past decade so response was a lot of related by the uh, was done by these organizations and uh, some of it is also specialized organizations working for uh, various health related issues uh, various child uh, protection issues women rights issues so a lot of those have combined their efforts and uh, they because they have a on on ground presence in these districts already so they sort of are uh, reliable and have been providing enough uh, they primarily deal with uh, water food and shelter so that's what they've been doing the government also is uh, partly assisting them because uh, the district administrations where these uh, non profits are operational usually require uh, administrative support and also security protection uh, we have a lot of reports how people who are very angry they tend to uh, come about and stop uh, caravans of food being carried further so they want of course they want uh, to have food themselves as well so that's uh, one part where security comes in similarly uh, chances of any sort of theft chances of any sort of law and order situation while distributing food because you have chances of uh, people running over each other you have pushing over in there so the state does come in to uh, sort of provide this support to non profits as well uh, on by on by itself it's of course wherever they are present the schools that existed are still uh, still standing those are being used as relief camps this is where government is also put their health services uh, such as vaccines such as uh, any life saving drugs that are available and uh, all the donations that are being received is, for example you have countries which have been donating uh, tents and uh, bedding for relief measures those have been supplied by the government and various tent cities have been established over the wherever there is basically dry land at this point and uh, really the government has been able to reach they uh, started to provide these services but we have areas where which are only accessible by helicopters for example so government tries to draw, have food drops in these areas but that's not a very sustainable situation Uh, helicopters cannot cover uh, large amounts of uh, ground anyway so we have the response so far isn't as much as is needed at this point so uh, perhaps uh, availability of more resources and uh, more focus approach from the government will be needed uh, you have calls for donations from the un as well yes, some countries have already pledged certain amounts uh, some have pledged resources some has pledged money so how the government uses it or how efficiently it manages it is uh, not something that we've seen in the past so that's a big area as well that your we have different disasters that have happened over the past 20 years uh, we also had the pandemic so how the government really manages manages it uh, is going to be a big question mark uh, as long as uh, you have large bureaucracy that has to be dealt with it will not be as efficient uh, that is also why a lot of people actually trust the non profits more so this is where we are that maybe the government uh, can use this opportunity to collaborate to more with the non profits allow 
them to take a lead on this. Um, they're also more specialized. Uh, they using them will not burden the government services themselves more. Uh, it will not require hiring more volunteers or ad hoc employees. So that's where uh, perhaps a better strategy can be used. And something that's also been discussed, including from uh, Pakistan's government, I believe, is you know the possibility of um, reparations for climate change, since that has been the center of so much coverage around the floods. Um, you know, do you think there's a case to be made for that? And how would Pakistan go about doing that in that Pakistan's, Pakistan's case, especially what the government says, is sort of simplistic because the government tries to uh, explain it in terms of debt relief. That uh, the debt we've received over the past couple of years, uh, we cannot repay it because we're going to use the money for rehabilitation. So that's what the government comes about and says. In the civil society or in academia or in among activist circles, the debate is largely around, around loss and damage. So perhaps articulation from the government it has not been good enough because we have ministries uh, which we have, are rarely interested in talking about climate change. Uh, the prime minister, successive prime ministers don't have enough knowledge about what climate change is. Uh, they're usually helped by specialists, but in this case, uh, what the narrative that has been said is that we are just aiming for debt relief. So maybe in the larger scheme of things, if Pakistan has to really call for reparations, it needs to see how a lot of scientific literature now says that your heat waves, your glacial melting, uh, impacts of glacial melting and heat waves, public health issues, uh, your increased chances of increased erratic extreme rainfall, all have been caused by climate change, which is uh, caused by certain countries of the global north. So the losses on our side have been caused by countries which have effectively been uh, protected from all of this. So we need to talk about uh, more about loss and damage, and we need to perhaps very, very in a crude way of saying that someone has left a bomb at our doorstep and it started blowing up, but the trigger and everything responsibility of whoever dropped it is neither us nor anyone from our region because this region is completely vulnerable. We need to really hold accountable people who are responsible for this. And uh, that's, of course, industries and uh, states of the global north. Thank you, Dava. Thank you for joining us today and giving us an overview of uh, what's happening in Pakistan at the moment with the Thank floods. You.